0: for you now from John's Gospel, the second last chapter of that Gospel, chapter 20. John chapter 20, I read the first 18 verses. This is God's holy word, secured in history and portraying truth in every part. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths laying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. May God bless the understanding of his word in our midst today. Calvary was no place for a woman to be. I wonder if you women among us can imagine in any way, shape, or form a 21st century invitation To come and attend the execution of a friend at a penitentiary when you had been informed that this friend would be tortured to death and it would take hours for him to die. Mary saw all that. And an isolated grave outside a city wall guarded by tough Roman soldiers was no place for a woman first thing in the morning. No idea whatsoever how those soldiers would treat a woman or several. Actually, there were several together, although the others are not named here in John. How would they be received? It didn't seem like a safe place to be. But it was the place where Mary Magdalene had to be and wanted to be. And so she came that morning to finish the process of cleaning up the dead body the one who was her teacher and her master, of applying the embalming substances, the spices and things that had been brought by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus so that burial that had been so rough and so much violence received could at least leave him in some decent state. Mary of Magdala was in a fog of sorrow and bewilderment. She hardly knew what she was doing She certainly didn't expect that morning that she would be the first person that the resurrected Jesus would speak to, and that she would be the first witness of his glorious resurrection. We actually know very little about this famous woman. You hear her name, and oh, sure, Mary of Magdalene. We know her, we think. Her little town, Magdala, was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, not very far from Capernaum, where Jesus began his ministry. We really don't know too much other than what Luke chapter 8 tells us, that it says there, Jesus had cast seven demons out of this woman. There's a supposition or kind of a fable that unfortunately clings to Mary in the modern musical Jesus Christ Superstar perpetuated it without biblical basis that she was a prostitute. That is not so. We don't know that from any biblical source. She did have some kind of a rough, difficult past from which Jesus delivered her. Twenty years ago, the book and movie The Da Vinci Code really invented and popularized a total fable, a slander, that Mary and Jesus were lovers and they had a child. That is so absurd, I won't even spend any more breath addressing it. It is utterly false, of course. The main thing we do know was that Jesus delivered Mary Magdalene from a difficult, painful past. And because of this, her devotion to him was all-consuming. I realize that not one of us can really get into the sandals, if you want to say it, of these people from that century, of the devastating sorrow or the incredible joy that Easter Day involved, because we know the end of the story. They didn't. They came to that grave with no expectation, basically, of a resurrection. Nothing like that on their minds. And so they were utterly confused, flabbergasted, amazed at the things they encountered. And it's very hard for us to enter into someone as ecstatic in their joy when the conclusion really began to come through to them. He was alive. And then take the fact that Mary had come to the tomb, and by the way, apparently with a couple other women because she says we did not find him, and they're named in the other Gospels. It's just that the spotlight's on Mary here in this Gospel We didn't find him. Well, she went back, hurried back to tell Peter and John. Then she hurried again to come to the cemetery, not quite keeping up with the men, apparently. And here she is now. The men, you know, like men, they found out what they needed to know and said, okay, we can check out, go home. Mary wasn't ready to leave. There was a huge emotional question that she was trying to deal with, and she was there weeping. The angels asked her about it, and then, of course, Jesus, supposed to be the gardener, said, why are you weeping? All of her emotional dam had burst, and she couldn't do anything for a while there but suffer. I don't have an answer, I don't think anyone does, as to why Jesus made her the first person to witness him in his resurrection body. I like one speculation, I think it's at least worth considering. The, the verse of Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen in the Old Testament says, If with all your heart you truly seek him, you shall also surely find him. God promises to meet the sincere seeker, and Mary certainly was that, that morning, perhaps more so, than anyone else among the small circle of disciples. John 20 reports not so much that she found Jesus. He found her. He came up behind her, and and she would have just passed him by and ignored him, but he found her by speaking her name. Then came his words, which I want to call to your attention in a special way in verse 17 today. Do not cling to me, Jesus said, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I want to examine verse 17 with you closely. First of all, I suggest that this verse has one very obvious conclusion to be made from it, and that is it helps us with plain evidence that Jesus was resurrected in a true material body. The text doesn't exactly say how she was hugging him, but somehow the moment she sensed this was Jesus, she fell down. She must have been on her knees with her arms around his legs, perhaps kissing his feet in gestures that would be natural in that day for someone who was a person of honor. She was holding him and hugging him. I ask you to imagine A U.S. Army soldier had one with us in the first service today, a man honorably serving our country as a sergeant in the Army. Imagine the soldier departing for a tour of duty, perhaps in Iraq. He's at the airport with other members of his company, and they're going to load, board a plane. And there are small groups all over the terminal, and here's this soldier with his wife and small child, with his parents, with a brother, a sister, whoever of the family had come, and they're huddled around him. They know that boarding is going to begin in minutes, and one after the other, everybody in the group is getting a long, hard hug onto that soldier, an arm around the neck, some tears, some kisses, and nobody wants to let him go, do they? Who knows if they'll see him whole and alive again? Well, reverse that picture... And think of the same soldier and his compatriots coming home months later as they emerge out of the airport tunnel from the plane. And here's the same family group, this time standing on tiptoe, shouting, smiling, laughing, rushing to him, grabbing him. They've got him back. Nothing substitutes for live physical contact. Not all the Skypes or all the emails or packages of broken cookies or anything else that that soldier received. Nothing substitutes from being able to hug the neck of someone you love. Well, that dynamic was operative here. In John chapter 10, a much earlier chapter, Jesus had said that his sheep knew their shepherd's voice. That's proved right here. All Jesus had to say was, Mary, I don't know what tone he said it. I I don't pretend I can imitate him. But she knew the voice. The sheep knew the shepherd. And Mary responded and cried, Master. As she responded to the central person in all of human history, she must have fallen on her knees. We're not actually told here. We might have expected a a verse in between 16 and 17 to say she fell down and was kissing his feet or something. But obviously she was because Jesus had to say, Don't cling to me. The one thing, if nothing else, that this proves was the risen Jesus was a breathing, speaking, solid, flesh-and-bone man capable of being embraced. No question here the proof that he rose in a true material body. That's the simplest conclusion we can draw. Secondly, though, look at the prohibition that is spoken to Mary Magdalene and take from it a caution from Jesus that our new relation to him will be something much more than mere physical interaction. I have a small fault to call upon against the King James Bible translation here at verse 17, and scholars have agreed with me for centuries. Unfortunately, the King James says that Jesus' words were, "'Touch me not.'" Well, I suppose that was technically accurate for what he was saying, but it isn't very helpful for us to understand what he meant since if you would take your finger and just follow down the column of chapter 20 and come to verse 27, you would see the same Jesus just a little while later encouraging Doubting Thomas to, quote, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, place it at my side, stop disbelieving And believe. Here he's inviting Thomas to touch him. So, what sense does it make that Mary Magdalene was being told, Don't touch me? I think the English Standard Version that we read from this morning does have the Greek verb portrayed more accurately. The verb is one that has in it the idea of clinging or grasping or desperately holding on. And when the ESV says the words of Jesus were, don't cling to me, don't cling to my physical presence as the main thing, Mary. The time for me to be a flesh and blood presence with you is passing. I will soon ascend to my Father. Go and tell the other disciples that this is going to happen. But after I ascend, if I can paraphrase his meaning, I will be present with you and millions of others forever in a far greater way than physical presence alone could ever convey to you. Mary was being invited to consider a new reality, the reality of resurrection discipleship with Christ. Actually, Paul spoke about this in 2 Corinthians 5.16. He said there, Although once we knew Christ after the flesh... Henceforth, we know him that way no longer. We have a new basis of knowledge of Christ. Friendship, fellowship with him would resume, but it wouldn't just be this small little huddle of disciples traveling the countryside, going from place to place where Jesus taught and maybe sitting around a campfire at night listening to teaching come from him that was amazing and wonderful. Jesus was saying, up until now, I have been a man Confined to a set of geographical coordinates on a map. If I was in Capernaum, I wasn't in Jerusalem. If I was in Jerusalem, I wasn't in Jericho or somewhere else. My movements were limited. My contacts, my communication were all limited to my true humanity. And Mary was here now making much of the humanity of Jesus without remembering or recognizing the divinity of of this one who had risen from the dead. Jesus was saying, I have something much bigger that you're going to become part of now. Colossians 1:17 is a passage that hints at this. We read there from Paul, he is he Christ is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of his body, the church. He is the firstborn of the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. And Paul says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus was reminding in a gentle way here, Mary, I am now so much more than I was able to be when I was a man walking among you. Now you see me. I'm still that man, but I'm glorified. And my task now is the task of the Son of God and the King of heaven. Paul in Philippians 2 said, Because Jesus was obedient even unto death on a cross, God has given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, Lord of heaven. And he hints at it here that for 40 days he will continue appearing to these disciples and they will see him and they will confirm that he indeed is risen and Up to 500 people would see him at once, the witnesses say later. But this isn't the end. The end is that he would ascend to the throne of his Father. He says, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. You know, it's so easy for us to be jealous of the first-century disciples, the original 12 that became 11, and Paul and the women like Mary Magdalene, others who knew Jesus in the flesh, who could say as she said, I have seen the Lord. We think, wow! What would it have been like to have that privilege? But yet the Lord here is hinting that His real work, His real accomplishment is only just beginning now. That the cross is behind Him. That He is raised to life again. Now there is a great Universal task. He's no longer just going to be the leader of a small group. You know, we talk about home fellowship groups or small groups. When you think about it, that was the church at this moment, not this section of folks sitting in these pews over here. That's it. You're all of them. That's all Jesus had for followers at this moment. But he's saying, there's so much more when I go to my God and your God. It isn't that there was anything inappropriate or morally wrong about Mary clutching at him or embracing him in adoration. But it was that she had to understand his future relationship to her and others would be much more than simply physical touching and speaking. Don't cling to me. There's something much more ahead of us. And so in the third place today, I would have you see or at least a hint of what that is. And you almost have to go beyond this text to things that are also in John's gospel. But Jesus here promises that we will know him best when we see him rule from heaven's throne and when we are indwelt as believers by his Holy Spirit. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. What does this imply? I think it implies without a doubt that he was the Son of God. He always had been the Son of God, but people could lose sight of that while on this earth. In fact, when he said he was the Son of God, that was the chief thing they mocked him for. Oh, he's the Son of God, huh? Why doesn't he come down from that cross? We heard them say that Thursday night from Matthew. Well, he was the Son of God. And now, by adoption through faith, we, men and women who believe in him, are sons and daughters of God. As well, Jesus was saying, my father is now your father. And one thing implied in that is something not spoken of directly here, but I believe it is definitely implied. If we turn back to John chapter 14, we would see that this one who is now going to be Lord and ruling son of God is also fulfilling a promise that we made first in John 14 and John 16 that he would come and be with us spiritually but truly through the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 17 and following, he talked to disciples and he said there, I am going to give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And then he said right in the same statement, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Now it would be easy for you to think that meant his second coming. You say, oh yes, Jesus is coming. He's going to come gloriously at the end of history. I know the Bible teaches that. I don't think that's the main emphasis here. When he says, right in the context of talking about the Holy Spirit, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He meant he would come through the personality of the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Jesus. You see this in John sixteen five and following, where, again, teaching about the Holy Spirit says... His Spirit will come and inhabit believers, dwell in us, live in us. Jesus is present where people have His Spirit. To have Christ as your Lord is to have His Spirit. To have the Holy Spirit is to have Christ. There's Scripture in Romans that says if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have Christ either. And so Paul would say in Galatians 2, Christ lives in me. He's not just far off behind the third galaxy to the left of the second sun, something like that, you know. Go find him out there in the distant universe. No, he's ruling that universe for sure, but he's in me. Christ is in me, say, says a disciple. And I don't need to clasp his pierced feet or touch his wounded hands in order for that to be real, because that's the reality he promised as a result of having ascended to the Father. I was so pleased. Just last week, we're having new member interviews. Many of you have been through this, and I was meeting with a couple of our elders with a a gentleman who's relatively new to our church, and he gave us a very sound, strong testimony of how his Christian faith began back in college days. And he said that what got a hold of him in a specific sense was studying the resurrection and the historicity of the resurrection, what we might call proofs of how we can say Jesus certainly was raised. You can't defeat the argument that he was. And this man said, that was that was the cornerstone. That was the keystone for me. He said, if that was true, everything else was true. And if that wasn't true, then nothing else was true about Jesus. And he said how he liked every Easter to pick up one of his several books that he had on the proofs of the resurrection and review it. He said, it just energizes my faith to do that. Well, I hope you're energized by not just a great historical event, not just these songs that burst out of us here today, the loud playing of the brass and the timpani and all our voices joined together, Christ the Lord is risen, I hope you're saying by that, He lives in me. He's alive in me. And I don't need His physical voice. I don't need Him to be in this room to accept that. He ascended into heaven so I can call God my God and His Father my Father. Christ lives in me he was implying that that's where he wanted us to be when he said, don't cling to me. Don't think an earthly material relationship with me is the be-all and end-all. It isn't. It's great that that it was and that it happened for these folks who experienced it, but Mary Magdalene and all the rest had to move beyond. And Christian, I tell you this today as a fact. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you call him Savior and Lord, if you bow before him, I say there is no greater distance between you and the ascended Lord Jesus Christ today than there was between Jesus and Mary Magdalene that long ago day. He is your Lord. He has made God your Father, your Lord. And you can say from the depth of your heart, I hope, Christ the Lord is risen indeed thanks be to God. Father, all these truths that wash over us on Easter Day give us joy. They give us hope. They give us a place to stand. They tell us that the mockery of those who laughed at him on his cross was coming back to redound against those who mocked and jeered. We can stand in confidence We can stand in courage. We can stand with real hope that the grave is not the end of us as it was not the end of him. How we thank you for Christ, our ruling Lord, present with us by the Holy Spirit. Amen.